If you would, grab your Bibles just for a second to John 17. We're going to read 1 through 5. John 17, 1 through 5. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I want to ask you to turn to John 18, 1, just for a second. I want to kind of show you kind of where we may be in the city of Jerusalem and kind of what is happening. At the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. So they've left the upper room and they are walking, we know, eventually landing in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when we get to 18, 1, they probably are somewhere outside of the city walls, somewhere. Uh, they're going to cross the Kidron Valley. Um, and make their way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. But 18.1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and this is this prayer that we'll begin to look at today, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples had entered. And so they're somewhere, probably outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe they're in the Kidron Valley or wherever it is. They're somewhere in between those two. Um, They probably most likely have stopped as he praise and speaks with them. I want to talk today about the glorious hour that has come that Jesus is going to talk about here. This is the most extensive prayer that Jesus prays that is recorded in the scripture. And I can confidently say this, it is the most significant prayer that has ever been prayed on the planet. So it was prayed somewhere outside of the city of Jerusalem and what is prayed here are some of the most significant things and important things for us to understand. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself, and that's what we will deal with today. And then from verses 6 to 19, Jesus is going to pray for the 11, although there are implications for us as well, but specifically he is praying for them. And then in verses 20 through 25, he's praying for those who will come after the 11 who will come to believe because of their testimony. And so it's the longest prayer that is written in the Gospels um, from Jesus. And there's been a lot of great prayers in the Bible. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple is really an awesome prayer to, to look at that and read the things that he prays. Abraham has a very significant prayer in Genesis chapter 18. Really, really um, great. Moses has... That prayer in Exodus 32 where he prays and asks God, I want to see your glory. And he prays and he asks the Lord that. And so that's a really significant prayer. Then he's got great communication with God as well, pleading for um, the people. But there has not ever been a prayer that is like this one. And it is absolutely important for us to understand what Jesus prays and, and why these things are significant to us. And so we get the privilege of eavesdropping. I don't know if you like to eavesdrop, but we're going to get to eavesdrop this morning and listen 
that somewhere outside the city they have paused and Jesus talks to the Father. So this prayer is magnificent in its glory and scope. It is partially a summary of three years of things that he has modeled for them, taught them, shown them that they have experienced. And it also has much to do with what he has been teaching them on this night, this last night with them. It is, in a sense, it's a prayer reinforcing much of what he has shown them and taught them. There are two sides to this prayer. It's a final prayer with them at the end of his earthly ministry. Another aspect that we can see is that it's also given an indication of the ministry he will continue to have that once he is exalted and he goes to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he will have this great ministry of intercession that the Bible speaks about. And so both of those are kind of connected. So there's an aspect of him him praying at the end of his earthly ministry, and then there's the aspect of him praying in regard to what he will do ministry-wise as he goes um, to heaven. And so sometimes in our life, we have all experienced this. If you remember last week we talked about, he said, I've got more things to say to you, but you're not going to be able to handle them right now. Sometimes in our life, we get to the place where it's time to stop talking, and it's time to start praying. We've discussed something enough, and we really need to fix our mind, fix our gaze, fix our heart on Christ, on the Lord, and listen. And that's where we are. And so he could have shared a lot more with them. They weren't ready for it. They were wrestling with what's there, and so he pauses to pray. And so let's look at this prayer that Jesus prays for himself, very father-centered And let's learn some important things uh, for us. So let's look again at the first part of verse 1. And we're going to stop at the word the ESV said, kind of part A of John 17, verse 1. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So I want to talk first of all about the great focus of our lives. We learn a, a, a great principle here from Christ in regard to our posture of prayer. Now, for most of us, this is how we pray. There's nothing wrong with the way we pray. Um, If I were to say right now, let's pray, everybody in the room would do this. And you would do what with your eyes? Close your eyes. Well, that's not the only way to pray. Jesus here gives us another perspective of praying that's biblical, it's okay. And it's this prayer where we lift our eyes to the heavens. So he lifts up his eyes, acknowledging that his Father is in heaven, and he begins to speak with the Father. That is okay to do that. If I were to say, let's pray, and you want to keep your eyes open, and you want to lift up, and your posture wants to be, I, I want to I pray right now in agreement of, of toward the Father, and, re, and reminding myself that he is the Father who is in heaven, that is absolutely okay. There are multiple ways. You can lay down, um, um, prostrate yourself, you can sit, you can kneel, there's A variety of ways, but in this context, Jesus has stopped. He lifts up his eyes, acknowledging his Father in heaven, and he begins to pray. The prayer is incredibly significant as we learn that this is the this is a continuation of what will be the longest day of his life. By the time he dies on the cross, he probably would have been up somewhere around 48 hours, so very little sleep. He will be beaten, he will be hit, he will have a crown of thorns, he will carry the cross, he will be nailed, he will be lifted up, 
He will fight for breath for about six hours on the cross because the purpose of the cross was to suffocate people in that way. So this is a long, long day for him. He knows what's about to come. It's the reason he came. He's going to embrace it. He's going to drink the full cup. And so he knows that what he needs in the moment as well is to rely on his father. And so he lifts his eyes and he begins to speak. And so I just remind us, have you looked at our world? This week has gotten a little worse. And so what we need to ever be reminded of is that there comes a time where we quit talking amongst one another and we talk to God and we lift our eyes and we cry out to him because in a world like ours now it is only the intervention and the power of God's name and his work that can bring the kind of healing that our world needs so so let's have that heart this week let's have that heart in these days of lifting our eyes and trying moments and speaking directly to the Father. And we're going to talk a lot about the glory of the Lord this morning because that's the focus of most of what Jesus prays here for himself and for the Father. And so the implication for us is this, since Christ's great passion was the glory of his Father and that he would be glorified through the cross so that the Father would be honored, our great passion must line up with God's great passion with, that is God's glory. So how do we, in our lives, before we move on to point two, glorify God? What do we need to do? And I think one of the main things that we need to do is we must, in our heart, make sure that Christ is on the throne of our heart and that we have dethroned ourself and ourselves and our way. And so when that happens, when Christ is ruling and reigning over our lives, then we will live in such a way to exalt Him and to glory in who He is. And so we want to make sure we are enthroning God over our lives and on our heart and dethroning ourselves. So look up this morning, Christ follower, where your hope resides. Let us look up together this morning As our King is risen and is exalted and He reigns. Look up this morning in a world and a culture that has great need of God's movement. And let's be reminded that our Lord sits enthroned on a throne in heaven. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of all lords. So let's look up. So Jesus teaches us that. Let's look at point two this morning, the second part. Of verse 1, and let's talk about the great hour of glory that has come. So Jesus lifts up his eyes, he speaks, and he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. We have no doubt that all through Jesus' life, he would have been in constant communion and with the Father, praying to him and, and speaking with him, but we get a very unique insight here in regard to the prayer that he prays to the Father. As so often we have seen, there is such a unity between the Father and the Son, a oneness of their nature that has affirmed our understanding of the Trinity. Ever have the Father and Son been connected with one another? The Father 
speaking, Jesus sharing when he was here, the things that the Father said. If you, we, we, let's remember what Jesus said. He said, I never did anything, I never said anything unless I heard it from the Father. I didn't do anything unless I saw it from the Father. And so he has ever been in communication and walking in obedience with the Father. And so on this evening, he says, Father, eyes fixed on you. Father, the hour has come. The long-awaited hour is here. Glorify your Son. Glorify me for this reason. Because I, my desire, my passion is that you would be glorified. And so Jesus is focused and settled on his Father. If we remember throughout John's Gospel, he has said over and over from the beginning, my time has not come, my time has not come. Let me just share a couple of those. In John chapter 4, at a wedding, she comes, uh, his earthly mom comes and Mary comes and says, um, They've run out of wine. There's an issue here. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, his brothers are talking with him. And they're like, why don't you go up to the feast? And since you're doing all this stuff, why don't you go up there and show everybody kind of what you're doing and what you do? And so he says to them, you guys going up to the feast, I'm not going to go because my time has not yet fully come. So later at that feast, it says that in John 7, 30... They were seeking to arrest him, but nobody laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 8, these words he spoke in the treasuries, he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now things have totally changed. The hour upon which he was purposed to come was here. The hour of our salvation, the the great culmination of the reason that he came was present and he acknowledges it. Father, the hour is here. And since the hour is here, this is my prayer to you. As I look to you in regard to the things that are about to come, I I am fixing my eyes on you. You are my joy. You are the one who sent me, and I will continue to be obedient to you. So, Father, I'm asking that you would glorify the Son because my great passion is that as you glorify me, I will live in a way to glorify you you. So this hour of the perfect plan of God is coming into fulfillment and it will culminate in the cross. This is the ordained hour planned before the foundation of the world. God knew what would happen. Peter affirms this. Paul affirms this reality. So when Christ says glorify fathers, my eyes are fixed on you. I'm asking you To glorify your Son, glorify me. Jesus is requesting that the Father, in what is about to take place, which is the cross, that in the cross, Jesus would get the glory that He deserved. And the glory that would come to Him would go back to the Father, and the Father would be glorified in that. And so in the cross, both the Son and the the Father, the Son and the Father, are glorified in this. It is... This is language rich in love and unity and care and knowledge of one another. There is not an ounce of selfishness here. He's not saying, oh, oh, glorify me because I, 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 I want to be the... It's not selfish. Like, I, want to be, I want to be the greatest name. It's not that. He's like, Father, this is the reason that I came. I came for the cross. I came to, to be the one who died as a substitute. I came to do this. And so, Father, in this moment, 
glorify me. And as you glorify me, Father, you will get glory in the work of the cross. Christ's glory is seen in the cross and that glory becomes our desperate need. Our need to see his glory in the reality of the cross. So Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. All of the glorious attributes of the greatness of the Father and the greatness of the Son are seen outside of the city, will be seen outside of the city of Jerusalem on a hill that we call Calvary, where God's great love for the world in the giving of His only Son and the great love of the Son for the Father and for the world where He willingly lays His life down. And so Jesus' prayer is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So the Son will magnify the glory of the Father in the cross. Now I want you to notice this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He speaks in the context here as if this has already happened. It's already been accomplished. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But he speaks as if this has already come to pass. This is how certain the fulfillment of the Father would happen. This was a plan of God that was eternal. It was before the foundation of the world. Listen to these verses. Galatians 4.4. This is Paul writing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Peter gives us further insight in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to what Peter says about Jesus. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for, your, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So Jesus speaks as if this has already been accomplished, even though he has not gone to the cross. This is why this plan to redeem us is so perfect, so good, so glorious, that it would be accomplished. Jesus' obedience is so perfect in line with the Father's plan that this is going to come to fruition. And so on the cross, though in the ancient world it was a place of shame, it would become one of the most glorious realities in the world and the beauty of God's glory and the beauty of God's grace. And this was the very plan of God. And so for Jesus, the cross would be the place where his glory would be on full display. So Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, this was planned, Christ entered the world. 1 Peter 1.20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that this would be the purpose, that he would be the one who would come, he would die, he would be raised, and he would get glory so that our great hope of our faith rests in him. Now, when the world looks at the cross today and the world hears about the cross, it's full of shame and full of folly. But Jesus describes it as a revelation of the glory of the Father and the Son. 
Now, for all of us in our lives, we all have certain hours of our life where we must take a stand, we must speak about something, um, we must testify about Jesus, we will share our faith, we will go somewhere, whatever the case may be. And so when those hours for us come, what should our response be? Exactly like Jesus. We lift our eyes, we focus on him, and the great passion and desire of our heart is that Christ would get the glory from our lives. So Jesus knew the Father was sovereign over his hour. So we can definitely know that he will be sovereign over the very hours of our lives. As Mark prayed earlier, we know people, some of us know people who are in Ukraine and they're believers and, and uh, they love the Lord and, and it's stressful being where they are right now with what is happening and taking place there. And my heart's been moved um, from hearing from some of them about, about their faith and their trust and their rest in God. They have an hour right now that's really difficult. And yet they're maintaining their faith, encouraging their neighbors, and encouraging them to trust in a living God. So Jesus lifts his eyes. The glory of the hour has come. It is the great hour of glory where the Father will get glory and the Son will get glory. Let's look at the third thing. And let's look at the great sovereign authority of God to give life. Look at verse 2 now. So since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This verse is another claim by Jesus that he is who? He is God. Who has the authority to give eternal life? Only God does. So as Jesus prays this prayer, Jesus is saying, I am God and I've been given and I've been granted this authority to give eternal life. Now I want you to notice the tense of the verbs in the words here in verse 2. Let's read it again. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So as Jesus prays on this night, this is not a prayer of selfishness, but it is one where his whole focus is in that the Father would get glory from his life. The connection, we must connect this desire for glory with his authority to be able to give life. So he says here, you have given him. This is past tense. Jesus has this already. On this night, as he prays, he has been given the authority already to give eternal life to all, to whomever that the Father gives to Jesus. So his authority already given to him, watch, notice this, before he even goes to the cross, Christ has been given already this authority to give eternal life to those whom the Father would give him. This is really important. This reinforces what I said a while ago. How certain was the cross being accomplished? Absolutely certain. It is the perfect plan with the one who could carry out the perfect obedience. And so here Jesus says, You have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Let me remind us about authority of Christ. Matthew chapter 28, he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so you go. 
to the nations. You go to the people groups and you tell them and you baptize them. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22, he is the head of the church. He is over the church. All are under his feet. Ephesians 1.22 talks about he is over the church. Philippians 2 tells us that he has such authority that at his name, this name that he's been given, that is above all names, that at his very name, what does everybody have to do? They have to bow at his name and they have to acknowledge that he is Lord. So he has Jesus in verse 2, since you have given him authority already over all flesh, he has this authority He can give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He has authority over all flesh, so he has the dominion of the earth. And nowhere is this seen more in Psalm chapter 2. I want to remind us, if you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there or you can listen. But I want us to read Psalm chapter 2 this morning, particularly in light of what has happened in Europe this week. And I want to show you the great authority to give life and why Christ has this. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You can see a little bit aspect of the Trinitarian aspect of the against the Lord and against his anointed one. And here's what they said. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away our connection. In other words, the cords from us, from God. Look at verse four. But he who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have a king. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Let me just stop there for a moment. This is a messianic psalm. This is not that the church gets the nations of the world. Who's going to get the nations as their inheritance, as their possessions? Jesus does. Do you remember Revelation chapter 5? There's this scroll that's opened in heaven. Or going to be opened and nobody was found worthy to look into the scroll and to see it. And John starts crying. They couldn't find anybody in heaven, on earth, under the earth. They couldn't find anybody to open it. And, John, and, and John's weeping and he's told, why are you crying? John, again, go back to 17.1. Lift up your eyes, John. Look, look. The lion. Of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And Jesus comes and he takes the scroll. It's the title deed to the earth. And he takes it from the Father and he is worthy to open it up. And as the nations rage today, church, I remind us that the Lord in heaven scoffs and he he laughs and he holds them in derision. Why? Because this is his world. It's not Putin's world. 
It's not the United States of America's world. It's not this one or that one or this power or this kind of political system. Eventually it will be this. The kingdoms of this world belong to King Jesus. And that's what Psalm 2 is about. And so when he says, I have, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree in seven. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And this is what Jesus will do. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, he speaks, O kings, you better be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You should approach the Son and kiss Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Hear this and we'll move on. Jesus lifts His eyes up Focused on the Father, he prays, Father, glorify the Son so the Son will glorify you because you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life and only God can give eternal life. And so again, Jesus is making the claim that he is God. I have this authority to give eternal life. Now I want you to notice what's said here because we're going to see it six more times in John 17. To give eternal life to all, in this phrase here, whom you have given him. This word life here is not bios, biology, life, like physical life. This is the Greek word zoe. And it means this, to give spiritual life, to give authentic life, God's kind of life. That's what it's talking about here. And I want to talk about this phrase, whom you have given. When we talk about interpreting the Bible... And we talk about understanding things in regard to what the Bible teaches. I want to remind us that our response always is we interpret what the text says. Not what we want it to say, not what we feel like it says, or whatever the case may be. What does the text say? And seven times in John 17, seven times in John 17, one indirectly six Specifically, it says this, whom you have given. So this points to all who believe will believe based on Christ's work. Those who believe in Christ are granted eternal life. This is the same group that Jesus referenced earlier in the gospel when he said, whosoever may come. We are, listen to this amazing reality. We are given to Christ by the Father. If you're here today and wondering, is, and you're a Christ follower and you've wrestled with sin and maybe, maybe some of us are not feeling very significant or maybe something has happened in our life and has kept us from having intimacy with God, I want you to know this. If you have come to know Christ in salvation because of Christ's work, you have been given to Christ by the Father. That's amazing. We are given to Christ by the Father. Jesus indicates this. Listen again, 
seven times in this prayer. Seven times in this prayer. That we have been given to Christ by the Father. Let me remind us what Jesus said earlier in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Not everybody's going to come. But all who come, that the Father gives to Christ, when they come, He doesn't eventually go, I don't want you anymore, get away. He doesn't cast out those whom the Father has given to Him. This speaks again of the great security of our salvation. That it's not grounded in us. Our salvation is secure as it rests solely on God's work and God's will, not on our work and not on our will. So they will come to Him and Jesus will keep them. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this now. Let's talk about this reality in verse 3. Let's go to point 4 this morning. I want to talk about the great definition of eternal life. So Jesus in verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here's a definition. If you ever wondered, how do, how do I define eternal life? Well, you define eternal life according to Jesus here by whether or not people know the Father and they know the Son. Now, this is not facts. Lots of people know facts about Jesus. Lots of people throughout history know facts about Jesus. This word here, know, is experiential knowledge. This is people who have, whom, whom the Father has given to the Son and salvation has happened. And the Father doesn't cast them out. He keeps them and He grants salvation to them. Those who have eternal life because Christ has all authority to give eternal life. We know what the definition of eternal life is, is those who know the Father and those who know the Son. Let me remind us that eternal life does not mean just, just to mean endless life. But it means endless relationship with God through Christ. Yes, it lasts forever, but it's about relationship. It's not about the time. It's about who we know. And again, I remind us of this incredible grace of God that the Father gives us to the Son. And then eventually, you know what happens? The Son gives us back to who? The Father. He presents us as a radiant bride to the Father. So eternal life means that we know the Father. Eternal life means that we know Jesus is sent to give eternal life. I'd like to point this out just for a moment. In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus only referred to himself as Jesus Christ once, and it's right here. Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. It's the only time he himself referred to himself as Jesus Christ. The apostles loved this name. You see it permeated in Acts and the rest of the letters. So the great definition of eternal life means that we know the Father and we know the Son. So eternal life with God is this great reality that we have been given. And I want to show you another aspect of this. So I want to ask you to turn to your right. And I want you to go to 1 John just for a moment. I know they'll say this a lot, but we really are almost done this morning. It will shock you. It's going to happen. 
First John chapter 5. I want to show you the second to the last verse in this great letter from John. That backs up what Jesus says here. First John chapter 5, verse 20. John writes, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, knowledge, understanding. We know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding. So that, for what purpose do we have this understanding? That He has come and He has given us understanding. So that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this affirmation of Jesus. He is the true God, and Jesus is what? Eternal life. So here's why our salvation is secure. Because He is eternal life, and if we are in Him and He is eternal life, and the Father has given us to Jesus, and He is eternal life, then our salvation rests not in us, it rests solely in the work that Christ has done. It is the object of our faith where our salvation rests, the only true God that tells us and allows us to understand that the definition of eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. And so the essence of eternal life is knowing the true God as He is revealed in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so this is the definition. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now let's look at verse 4. And I want to talk for a moment about the great accomplished work of Christ. And this is really important. So look at verse 4. Now, I want you to notice the tenses of the words again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do those sound like past tense? They do. Now, he hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen from the grave yet. He hasn't ascended yet. He hasn't gone all the way to the cross yet. So how can Jesus say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do? Now I want you to listen to this. I've already hinted at it, but I want to reinforce it. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us that before the foundation of the world, the plan was put in place that Christ would come is a perfect plan. The one that he sent is perfect. So what was he going to do? That what he was sent here to accomplish, what was he going to do? He was going to accomplish it. So a perfect plan required a perfect obedient one. And that's exactly what we have here. I want you to feel the weight of this. It's really it's really significant. Some people say, well, was there a possibility because Jesus was tempted that he would turn away from going to the cross? I'm one who believes that no. 
If God is absolutely perfect and his word stands, and this was the eternal purpose before the world began, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that when Christ came, what was he going to do? He was going to accomplish the work. Was he tempted? Was the temptation real? Absolutely it was real. But God doesn't sin. So this eternal purpose, again, do you feel the weight of the security that is ours because of that? Look at the words again in verse 4. Again, I remind you, he has not gone to the cross. They have not hit him in the face one time. He has not carried the cross. Not one nail is in his body. This plan was so certain, so, so perfect, because there was a perfect obedient one who was going to come to accomplish it. And so he says to the Father, on this night, before he's even arrested, before Judas plants a kiss on Christ's cheek, Jesus authentically, in truth, says these words, I have glorified you on the earth. And I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He has accomplished it. He will see to it that it will be accomplished. So again, the plan was perfect. His obedience was perfect. So I want you to hear that. Let's hear this significant truth. Let it permeate anything maybe that we've been taught, whatever the case may be. Since the work of Christ is finished, it is accomplished, we are therefore not needed to contribute to what has been accomplished. Do you hear that? Since the work of Christ is finished, and again, that's that, I'm drawing that out of the text. I'm not reading that in there. I have glor- I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Everything that was necessary was completed. And in this completed work, Jesus glorified the Father's mission to save sinners. Now let me give you an obvious point. You're going to be amazed at my intellect. Since these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, And it was accomplished 2,000 years ago and we were not there. We were not necessary for the accomplishment of salvation. Peter was there. John was there. Paul was somewhere. Wasn't a believer yet. They weren't needed to accomplish the work of salvation. And I can't make this any more clear but I can stress its significance. We were not there. It was not our perfect obedience. And he says here, draw the principle out again, what does the text say? I glorified you, Father, on the earth. I accomplished what you sent me to do. And again, He knows that he's going to what? Embrace the cross. And he will die. 
So we don't say 2,000 years later, God, let me help you complete the work that you accomplished 2,000 years ago. How silly is that? This is why our salvation has such worth is we couldn't contribute to it. But glory to his name that he laid his life down and he did it all. He did it all. Let's look at the last thing this morning. The great eternal and abiding glory of Christ. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We have this great chapter in the Old Testament. This great book of the Old Testament. Really, really long. It's called Isaiah. And early on, Isaiah's in a land and, and the land's in chaos. The kings aren't following. The people aren't following. But in the year that King Uzziah died, God opened up a curtain of heaven and allowed Isaiah to peek inside of heaven. And when Isaiah got to see inside of heaven, this is one of the things that he saw. That there were angels that were there. And they couldn't stop saying this. Calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they would call back and forth. And Isaiah is getting this picture. And he said that the threshold of the temple where God was, it shook with the voices, these thunderous voices. Can you imagine what it was like for the angels who had only known to worship and honor Jesus that all of a sudden he's down there in a womb of a teenage girl in Nazareth? Is it any wonder in Bethlehem when they show up to the shepherds that they say this first? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill to man. Because in the city of David, Bethlehem, shepherds, is born a king. And now Jesus, who knew before the world began this glorious intimacy with the Father, now says this, and now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the exact kind of glory that I had with you before the world began. Some have said that, I don't know why they say this, but some say this, that Jesus wasn't always fully aware of who he was. Boy, it sure sounds like he gets it here, that he knew that he was pre-existent before the world began. He understood that. And he understood that he had a glory. That's why John 1.1 is one of the most important sentences ever written. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That was with God means face to face. He was face to face with his father in great intimacy, in great glory together. And so now 
as he finishes this prayer for himself before he begins to pray for the 11. He just says, now, Father, in this hour, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He is asking for the same glory as before. The previous glory they had together that it would be manifest and he knew he would be going to it. The same prophet Isaiah shared about God not sharing his glory with anyone. I'm going to share two verses and point out something and we'll finish. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, says it twice, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now I want you to listen to this. It's really important. Here is Yahweh proclaiming that he shares his glory with no one. And yet here is Jesus outside of Jerusalem saying, Father, give me the same glory that I had with you before the world existed. So if God the Father and God the Son share their glory, we already have an indication here from Jesus' words and from Isaiah of the oneness and an indication of aspects of the Trinity, even in Isaiah. Both are referenced here, even in Isaiah. Jesus has the same glory as the Father. The Father has the same glory as the Son. And by the way, the Spirit has the exact same glory as the Father and the Son. It's hard to know. Kind of have to speculate. Can you imagine what that reunion was like when he was lifted off the earth and entered back into the glory of the presence of his Father that he had before the world began. I don't think, can you imagine what the angels must have done as he entered back into the throne room of heaven, into the place of glory? So John 17, one through five, Jesus praying for himself. Some final thoughts. This is a prayer that the intrinsic glory of Christ would be known so that the Father would also receive glory. The hour had come, the long-awaited hour. He is fully aware of everything that is happening, what has arrived as he faces it. He knows that he is deeply loved by the Father, so he looks to the Father, the one that he had glory with before the world began. So the hour of redemptive history had arrived. What is this hour of glory like? What will be fulfilled in this hour of glory? Let me share a few things. The hour of glory of the Father's eternal plan being accomplished. This is the hour of glory of the enemy's defeat. This is the hour of glory of the grave being crushed. This is the hour of glory of chains being broken and captives being set free. This is the hour of glory of Isaiah 53 being fulfilled. This is the hour of glory of the fullness of mercy and grace shown. This is the hour of glory where the temple guarding and separating the Holy of Holies is torn into two pieces. This is the hour of glory. Do you remember this? When the graves opened up and the saints of old walked around Jerusalem that Friday afternoon. 
This is the hour of glory for him to become sin, for him to become sin on our behalf. This is the hour of glory for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to take away the sin of the world. This is the hour of glory where he will bear the judgment of God in our place. He will bear it. This is the hour of glory for his perfect obedience to be finished. And that is why he can say, I have glorified you and I've accomplished what you sent me to do even before the cross. In every bit of it, he will be glorified. And as he is glorified, so will the Father be exalted. By the way, for Jesus, there is no glory without the cross, for the Father required the cross for Jesus. That's why these words that we, somehow in our church culture today, we set aside. If anybody would come after me, he must deny himself and take up what? His cross. His cross. Jesus had a cross. We don't carry his cross. We carry our cross of obedience in coming after him. So, eternity past and present meet at the cross. And in this work, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified, and the Spirit gets honor. And I love within the Godhead, they honor one another. We've already looked at this. The Spirit honors the Son. The Son gives honor to the Father, and the Father gives honor to the Son. And they give glory to one another in this great work of salvation. John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if if you meet somebody and they say, well, I honor God, but I'm not really into Jesus, well, they don't honor the Father. It contradicts what we draw out of the text in John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son, if you don't honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Last verse, John 7, 18. This is an important one. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. In that context, it's been a while since we've been in John 7. Jesus shows up at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he had a conversation with his brothers. They're like, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and make a big show of all your stuff? And he's like, y'all go ahead. I'm not going. My hour has not yet come. But he shows up later in the week. When he shows up later in the week, he says this. Listen, um, I didn't come to speak on my own authority. If I came to speak on my own authority, I'm making much of me. But I came to speak on the authority of the one who sent me. And listen to the words. John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus said, I didn't come to say whatever I wanted to say. I came to say what the Father wanted me to do. And when I saw the Father work, I joined the Father and I worked and did the same works that the Father did. So I didn't come seeking my own glory. I came for a purpose to accomplish the Father's will. So I'm going to perfectly obey him. I'm going to say what needs to be said. I'm going to do what needs to be said. And because of that, I didn't come seeking my own glory, but I came seeking the glory of him. That makes me the true one. Because I came 
for him. And so listen to what he says. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Jesus again saying here, I am the truth. I'm the truth. Because I didn't come seeking my own glory. And again, as he prayed a while ago, when he prayed, Father, glorify me. He's not doing that out of selfish reasons. He's doing that, that as he's glorified, who gets glorified? The Father does. So let me read it one more time. Notice the word true and falsehood, John, 17, John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. This is how Jesus prayed to the Father on this night. He gets the glory and everything. The name above all names, the one who accomplished the work, we contributed nothing to it. He did the work. Let's pray.